0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel Six, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand with special guest James Bradley on the often stumbling, poorly recorded, seldomly on time, and very, very rarely organized Coot Street Podcast. And
1: hi. hi, how are you, Jonathan? After after all the careful preparation we put into this buying this expensive recording equipment, this microphone I have, which was ninety dollars. And you're you're talking about this being an unprofessional podcast. How dare you? Oh, well. Thank you, James, for joining us again. <laughs> no,
2: I'm very pleased to. It's the hours of preparation that got me down, though.
0: Uh-huh. Well, actually, hours of preparation is a point that's on my mind. It's completely to the left of what we're going to start talking about. But when you do these things, do you do hours of preparation, James?
2: I saw your blog post. Um, <laughs> um, look, I do a lot of... Um, I do a lot of festival things. It depends on the event, really. You know, I mean, if you're chairing something, you need to, but if you're not chairing, you know, there is a line between being over prepared and being under prepared.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, look, I was just thinking when you were introducing it, one of the things I love about podcasts is that there's a kind of ritualized nature to podcasts, and almost every single podcast you listen to begins with the people who do the podcast explaining talking about their lack of preparation and what are we going to talk about. It's kind of one of, the, it's one of the rituals of podcasting, clearly.
0: Well, maybe it's because so many podcasters aren't professional broadcasters, and so they're trying to protect themselves up front in case it doesn't come, come off very well. <laughs> which I guess may tie into, and I don't know if you read it, Gary, the blog post I did earlier this week, which I'll link to when this podcast goes up, uh, talking about doing panel items at conventions, doing year-in-view panel items at conventions in particularly, and making allusion to the worst panel experience of my life.
1: I will look at that. I've not looked at it yet. But I, I, it
0: doesn't surprise
1: me at all that it might be on something like a best-of-the-year panel. Because those are pretty much ill-conceived panels to begin with. They invite people to list uh, and, and to do much, not much more because – um what happened last year in science fiction or fantasy or general fiction is worth talking about, but it's worth talking about in some
0: other context than a, a series of lists. But that's it. It comes to what we're talking here about with James today. I mean, uh, yes, these these pa- these panels are list panels quite often i mean i think the organizers hope you're going to say something deep and meaningful about trends in the field and what what you've seen as you've read during the year that go beyond just the texts mm-hmm. whilst the audience are hoping for a list to go take home and read both of them are valid uh motivations yeah. but actually quite difficult to fulfill within the context of a single discussion and yet we're about to engage in a discussion which in a sense amounts to how have you been how have You've been experiencing the science fiction field in the last three to six months. What have you been reading and how is it going? So is it ironic to be complaining about it?
2: <laughs> Somebody. Hang on, James. I'm not complaining about it. Okay. I, I'm, I, <laughs> I've never had to do a best of panel. I'm, I'm interested because, I mean, I go to a few conventions and I – but mostly what I do is write festivals, you know, which are a – a kind of different and more professionalised kind of event. And I'm always struck by, you know, you get really dodgy panels at writers' festivals and you end up on, you know, you occasionally do panels which don't go so well at writers' festivals. (laughs) I've (laughs) done some shockers. But I wonder sometimes where, you know, one of the advantages of conventions is in a sense, there is a kind of flatness of hierarchy about them, and that comes through in the panels, you know, the audience and the panel are, in a sense, it's a much more collectivised kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at writers' festivals, it tends to be, you know, however much interaction there is, it tends to be there's a bunch of people on the stage who are there to talk, and then there's an audience who are there to listen, and it just kind of creates a different dynamic. I think, uh, you know, I think you, you get a kind of, there's a more performative aspect to it at writers festivals, you know, there's, it just somehow changes the dynamic, you know, and I think it's often more satisfying, you don't get those, you almost never get that thing which you do get at conventions, not infrequently, which is that totally shambolic panel, you know, the one that's just kind of people who haven't prepared, you know what I mean, that kind of total mess, you almost forget that at writers festival, you know, but, you know, what you do get at rise festivals sometimes are kind of boring, over-prepared, didactic kind of sessions. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a different
0: kind of a different kind of thing. Yeah. Well, well, I, I guess the question that follows from this is: so, how, how's your science fiction and fantasy reading year going, James?
2: Um, me? Oh, I thought you were going to ask Gary first. Um, <laughs> I know what he's reading. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, I I have been reading less probably than I should be, because I've been trying to finish a book. Um, so I've been. Writing a lot, um, it's been interesting. Um, I what have I read recently that I thought was good? I think the Gaiman was very good. I That's had, the ocean
0: at the end of the lane.
2: Yeah, which I thought was I actually thought was very good. Um, although I, um, Gary and I have talked about this before, but I I I feel like I read a different book from most of the reviewers. Um, the that odd thing where you read a book and you feel like. You didn't read the book everybody else
0: read. How <laughs> you know, am sorry. What
2: do you mean? Oh, look, I feel like it was a much darker book than most of the reviews have suggested, and I think interestingly, having heard Gaiman doing his kind of his patter about the book on the radio a while ago, mm. I feel like I read a different book to the one he's saying he wrote as well, which is you know, which is also really odd. You know, I mean, I felt I read. A book that was very much about damage, it was very much about loss, you know, it it was a very
1: uncomfortable and quite dislocated kind of book. Yeah.
0: You know, so I think uh, it,
1: it, you, you had made a point in, in your review and uh, and you and I both reviewed it, and we and, and our friend John Clute reviewed it. But the point you made, which I thought was crucial, was that as much as the book pretends to be about remembering, it's actually much more a book about forgetting.
2: Absolutely. And I mean and I think I mean I've said to you this before, but I mean there is there's a moment that I think is a really crucial moment in the book, which is about halfway in. And he does that routine about all children are monsters, you know. And then he, mm. he says, I know this because my aunts used to look at me and call me a little momser. And there's this kind of moment where you suddenly go, this kid's Jewish and he's got Yiddish grandparents in the 1960s. as Yiddish-speaking grandparents in the 1960s, you know. So you, mm-hmm. you suddenly realise that there's this kind of vast erasure sitting on the edge of the book you know this kind of vast kind of holocaust sitting there off to one side which you then get repeated in the final Mm. pages where you realize that he's gone back to the pond several times before and Mm. each time had the memory taken away from him you know and it is there's something very very unsettling and quite i i think deeply sad's not even the word you know there is something really damaged about about that and yeah, you know, I keep reading these reviews where people talk about what a wonderful celebration of
0: childhood. <laughs> no, I don't think it's that at it's, all. It's, yeah,
1: I would love to. Uh, at some point, I, I want to. Uh, I want to talk to China Mieville about this book because China is, in some ways, an anti-Neil Gaiman. China is the writer who said very famously about uh, Tolkien that uh, I think he said the idea of uh, fantasy as redemption or restoration makes me want to puke. Um, and 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 to some extent there is a sweet fantasy disguising what you're describing here but it's really it's really a much darker fantasy that the the word moms are, which suggests a Jewish family and I know I, I have no idea if this is a connection I just thought about this myself I know within the last year or so Neil has uh, been working with a cousin of his who is in fact a Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. and has gotten very involved with this much older cousin obviously yeah. uh, and and why is, I think, there may be one or two words in the entire novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which reveals to you that
0: this is, in fact, a Jewish family? Yeah. Well, what struck me, actually, is that, you know, the, the, I think the Mievel quote actually has to do with consolation. You know, fantasy is consolation. Consolation, that's what it was about. And was the one thing that I thought Ocean wasn't was a consolatory fantasy. I mean, I, I mm. very much read it your way, uh, I think, James, that it was a very dark and tragic ending to the book. Mm. You know, and as I say, this idea, which isn't discussed in reviews because it's a spoiler to the, the, the you know, the, the, novel, I guess, that this character has been reliving this experience of going, being drawn back to this childhood trauma mm. that's happened to him again and again, living through some kind of experience, achieving some kind of uh, resolution for it, then having that resolution taken away from him again, and leaving him kind of desolate you know, at, at, at the end, broken and kind of left. And you're aware that almost certainly he's going to cycle through this again and again yeah. and again.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of I, mean, I the whole thing, of things are really striking about it. One of the things I think is interesting actually is how many of Gaiman's books begin in funerals. But, you know, that, that, that's another another question. But, you know, that, the, bit at the beginning, you don't even know whose funeral he's there for. I mean, this is a profoundly damaged mm person Mm -hmm. you know there's there's, there's just these absences and erasures all through this book stuff you just don't get told and and it's really very odd and quite quite unsettling i mean with respect to china who i think is one of the smartest people i've ever met um i i'm never sure that the lord of the rings is a particularly consoling book to be honest i mean particularly you know it's so much a book about kind of psychic damage and about you know, the ruining of people and the ruining of things, Mm -hmm. you know. I I think people also misread that. Or I I think, in fact, it's a book that's kind of taken on a kind of, you know, it's read now often for what it represents, you know, rather than what it actually is, you know. And, you know, you can't read what happens to Frodo. You can't read the Dead Marshes. You can't read any of that stuff, the scouring of the Shire, without seeing that this is actually a, it's not really a consoling book at all. It's a book about endings and destruction and depression. You know, it's about post-traumatic stress.
1: Well, and I think uh, it's also worth mentioning that uh, the Tolkien's famous essay on fairy stories that appeared in that volume of essays for Charles Williams in 1947 was never intended to be a guide to how to read Lord of the Rings. It, it, it essentially was uh, a, an essay on how he thought uh, traditional fairy stories, going back to and including people like George MacDonald, could be read, but he wasn't—he wasn't necessarily talking about his own work in that essay. So the constellation may be a little bit of an unfair charge to bring against him.
2: It is funny though, because I mean, there's a level at which Tolkien embodies something that's written very deeply into fantasy as a genre, which is a kind of sense of belatedness. You know, it's—it's it's a genre that. You know, as much as it makes sense as a genre, but there is a kind of sort of core text to it. You know, which which is always about loss and ending at some at some level. You know, it's about a, a world that's mm. a world us, you know, so that kind of belatedness is very powerful.
0: Well, well, well certainly there, there's a strong element in Lord of the Rings and and a certain kind of fantasy uh, about wishing for something better that's been lost. Mm. You know, and I think that's very much what you see at the at the base of the Lord of the Rings. You know, there's wishing for the idealized world of the Shire, which is damaged by what happens. Um, I'm not sure you get that in a book like *The Ocean at the End of the Lane*. Though. No, because I mean, what you're, I mean, even the good version of what you see in *The Ocean at the End of the Lane* is not idealized and wished for. It's this thing you you survive. Um, I'm not sure that that fantasy, you know, the, the bad rap that fantasy gets about consolation and wish fulfillment is fair when you're talking about its better text, and it's always hard to judge fairly any genre or anything else on its poorer texts, which will fall into those kind of simplistic, repetitious tropes.
2: Mm. I mean, I also think with The Lord of the Rings, I mean, there's a level at which, you know, if you want to drop these things into a a kind of intellectual history, I mean, you can read Lord Lord of the Rings. It's the equal and opposite reaction to modernity that Ulysses is. I mean, it's the kind of great anti-modernist text, you know, so it's responding mm. to the same tensions and and problems, but, you know, going off in a completely different direction. And I've heard China, in fact, argue that, you know, in a sense it should be read next to Cthulhu, which I think is interesting, which is equally a kind of anti-modern text, you know, I mean, in the sense that, they are the equal and opposite reactions, you know, modernism and then that kind of fantasy are, are the equal and opposite reactions to modernity. But then you get a book like *The Ocean at the End of the Lane*, and it's it's out of a quite different kind of cultural context. I mean, it's a,
1: it's using fantasy for entirely different things.
0: Is it closer? It is, to, I, 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 sorry, Gary. Go, go ahead, ahead John. No, ahead, oh, ahead. Well,
1: I was going to say that there's a uh, there, there's a kind of implied mythology behind uh, *The Ocean at the End of the Lane* and behind uh, *The Graveyard of the Book*, which is which is anti-modernist in a different sense. I mean, the, 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 the idea of the, the prelapsarian world, the lost world, the lost uh, the lost England or the lost shire, is, that's very common in fantasy. But countering that, interestingly enough, very characteristic of a lot of American fantasy is the Lovecraftian notion that the older world is horrible and wants to destroy us. And we better hope it never comes back. Uh, we become... The prelapsarian world and, and and that kind of thing, and there's an there's an implication in a lot of gaming that that what lies out there in the darkness is a lot worse. What lies out there in the past is a is a lot more frightening than what we have right now.
2: Uh, you Americans and your hatred of the Ancien Regime.
1: Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We all—all we all of us here in the
0: states think exactly like Howard Phillips Lovecraft. <laughs> but but where does Gormenghast sit by comparison? Because that was always to me uh, cast as being the the opposite strand of modern fantasy to Tolkien.
2: Yeah, God, it's year since I've read Gormenghast. To be honest, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's also that level at which so many of these books. Like, to us, they look like a tradition, and there is a tradition there, you know. I mean, and you follow it back through the Red Fairy books and things like that. But, yeah, you know, they are all kind of great, weird texts at another level. You know, I mean, there is – I read a wonderful thing about Tolkien once, which was talking about him and saying so – You've got this man who retreated to his room for 50 years to write elven <laughs> languages and invent a world. Now, because it became a massive world by bestseller, he's seen as a genius. But if he was anybody else, we think he was totally insane.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then, and, then sold, and then sold the best part of it for 10 grand to pay a tax bill and made no money off it in the future. So, Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, you're right. I mean, you're right. It, it's crossed my mind before. I mean, what, what's the difference between Lord of the Rings and someone c- creating a endless D&D campaign of infinite detail where, where you would, you'd look at them and go, that person is just a little bit eccentric.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, but, I mean, I, what, one of the stories I've always found most kind of telling when reading The Lord of the Rings is that, I mean, he went off to the front in the First World War, and he was one of those young men who was recruited and went with a whole lot of other men from Birmingham and from that area, and he was the only person from his peer group who came back, you know, and it is that thing about kind of the massive survivor guilt and damage Mm. of being Mm. the only
1: survivor is written all through those books, you know Yeah There was a BBC television adaptation. I think it was BBC, maybe it was not I don't know of um, of, uh, Ford, Maddox Ford's um, Parade's End and it was excellent. It was really excellent. Benedict Cumberbatch and I. I remember watching that and thinking at some point that that this is this is the story of the generation that that included Tolkien. This is this uh, Jan. Tiet- what, the character's name is Teachens, I believe. He could almost have been Tolkien. A very intellectual, very sensitive, very cultured uh, person who was just absolutely devastated by his experience in the war. Um, and that's true partly of a generation of, of, of writers. I know um, uh, Well, David Lindsay, who's somebody I did part of my dissertation on, was devastated by uh, the First World War, but never actually served on the on, on the front lines. I mean, the, the psychic power of that must have been something uh, that, that the likes of us have no comparison to at all.
2: Mm. Yeah, oh, look, I, it's almost impossible to get your head around. I mean, either of those mass mobilization wars, it's just... It, yeah, it's unimaginable, basically. Yeah. You know that um, random trivia. You know that Ford Maddox, Ford was married to an Australian painter, don't you? No. No. Oh. Don't a
1: good know boy, if I knew that. Who was the painter?
2: Australian painter called Stella Bowen. Grew up in Adelaide. Wrote a really good book about growing up in Adelaide, where I grew up. I can oh. tell you, she describes doesn't sound much different to the one I knew as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I
0: must not make jokes like that. So, so, so to bring us around a little bit, where, where do you see Ocean then in Neil's body of work? Because, I mean, it, it t- seems to me like the Graveyard book was kind of like Coraline meets American Gods melded together. And this is like the next thing of pulling some core emotional heart out of what he's doing into his fiction uh, in a way that he's really not managed to do in the past.
2: Well, that was certainly Gary. I mean, I thought Gary argued that very persuasively yeah. in review you wrote for Locus, Gary. That it, it's in well, a sense his
1: first personal book. Mm. I think I think with all his other books, you can find, you can almost identify sources, and by and large, Neil will cheerfully um, acknowledge them. I mean, the the Coraline is, is is heavily influenced by Lucy Lane Clifford's The New Mother, mm-hmm. um, and Nancy Boys is heavily influenced by an, a number of. Uh, trickster myths and, and Zora Neale Hurston and American Gods is uh, is is a kind of uh, well also now they think about it Nancy boys is heavily influenced by Woodhouse and Thorne Smith so there's a sense in which he's a he's a magpie he really yeah. is very very good at at copying uh, earlier styles and making them his own he's done it with Lovecraft he's done it with R A Lafferty. Um, It's very hard for me to find any of that in the ocean at the end of the lane. It's a book that sounds more like Neil Gaiman than any other. Yeah,
2: I think think it's a very good book.
0: I I was hugely impressed by it. So so I guess to sort of step back from a conversation then and to continue where we'd started, what else have you read lately that was interesting?
2: Um, I read Dark Eden, the book that won the Clark, the Chris Beckett book, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I have to say I was a bit unconvinced at the beginning i mean it's a very familiar setup in a sense i mean although the world itself is quite interesting the 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 kind of setup you know about the the kind of ruined culture yeah this piecemeal memory of where it came from is 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 one you've seen done more than once yeah but once it gets going He's amazingly good on the way groups work and on the way societies kind of enforce order. You know, and yep. it's beautifully written. And I, I actually thought it was
0: really good by I got to the end of it.
2: What else have I read? Um, I read um, the New Macaulay, which is.
0: That's Evening's Empires? Evening's Empires, I've read Falling Sky, the Pippa Goldschmidt book, the mm-hmm. Patrick Ness. Yeah. So, so tell me, what, what are your thoughts around the, uh, Evening's Empires at the moment? I, mean, I, was, I was going to ask that as well, because I read that as well, and I enjoyed it. Because I, mean, I have this sneaking suspicion that Macaulay may be the best, certainly hardcore science fiction writer working today. And this Quiet War sequence has been the most important series of books he's written in his career.
2: I think that's fair. I mean, I haven't read all of Macaulay's work, but um, certainly I think these Quiet War books are really, really impressive and interesting. Um, and this is a really – I think it's a really interesting book in a whole series of ways because, in a sense, what's fascinating about the first two is that they're basically novels of landscape. You know, I mean, what he wanted to write about were those moons and there's a yeah, kind of political – thing grafted on top of it really their novels of landscape the moment those mo- those novels really come to life is when he's talking about the landscapes of you know titan and its lattice and wherever else he is you mm-hmm. know and so, and they're the That's, really
1: magical moments in those books at, at the end of um if i recall uh, at the end of gardens of the sun he has a, a number of acknowledgments and it doesn't mention other science fiction writers it mentions the um the, the 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 ground crews of of the Cassini probes and all the all, all, all the all the planetary and uh, you know tra- transjovian moons and that sort of things so he was yeah I think you're absolutely right I think that uh, the at least the quiet war in gardens of the sun and some of the short stories are just love letters to astronomy yeah um, and the hmm. Macy, a Macy Minute story
2: history. which was in Jonathan's most recent
1: best of is is definitely that Um yeah, exactly Macy Minute uh, the t- yeah.
0: Mary Macy Minow's, I uh, can any of us remember the entire title of that story? <laughs> well, can I just say it's shameful that I can't because I published the story originally in in Edge of Infinity. Uh, hang on, I have. Wait a sec. It, it is. Grabs a copy of Edge of Infinity off the shelf. Uh, I, I remember when I first got this, I nearly had him tr- truncate the title. Macy Minutes Last Christmas on Dion, Ring Racing, Fiddler's Green, The Potter's Garden. And it's basically three or four sets of scenes set through the solar system. Yeah, which are only loosely related, but have thematic resonance, I guess you'd call it. But each of which is a intense postcard of love, I guess, to some different image of the solar system. And which yeah. it's 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 part of a movement. I mean, we've seen some of that with
1: Alastair Reynolds. We certainly saw it with with Kim Stanley Robinson's Twenty Three Twelve. But I think this is this may be something where Macaulay, being a biologist and being fascinated with the structure of these Planetoids, and, 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 and he, he he makes an aesthetic out of that by itself. Um,
0: but he's it's also very, think he, he's very romantic about it. I mean, he deeply romanticizes it, yes. these things. I mean, you can't get an image like the one in, in the story Fiddler's Green of you know these this, these little asteroids circling out into the distant parts of the solar system with with, with sort of like a little, one sort of little habitat on it as this sole little light of civilization in the darkness, without mm. it being intensely romanticized by him. I mean, it's really what, brilliantly done.
1: Yeah. You know what I liked
0: about. Um, go, go ahead, uh, James. I didn't mean to. Oh no
1: no no. Oh, you, you, you.
0: Well, look. What I was going to
2: say is, having said that, those first two are very much novels of landscape. Um, I think this last one's really interesting because, you know, it's lots of things. It's interesting. It's it's an adventure story. It's a coming of age story. It's a, it's all of those kinds of things. But what it what it seems to me to be at its heart is actually a book that's about something that I mean it's something I've been trying to get my own head around for ages, but which is, it's about the kind of exhaustion of cultures, you know, so it's about what happens to humanity, you know, in, you know, assuming we don't go to the stars, you know, what happens to us in 500 years, a thousand years, 2000 years, what is the project? You know, where, you know, it's about the kind of running out of a vision of the future. And, and you kind of have this sense of these societies, which are just kind of slowly, Collapsing back into themselves, you know. And, and what I think is interesting is that it's it takes that as a that exhaustion is a kind of literal question, but also as a as a metaphor. And you see that in the use of the titles of the sections, because for people who haven't read the book, the book uses each section is titled with a kind of golden age science fiction story. So there's the Caves of Steel, and I'm, I'm now going to complete childhood uh, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah.
2: but you know. um and in a sense, the book is riddled through with these kind of references to earlier science fiction novels. I mean, there's that great moment early on where they talk about the kind of, you know, cool intellects. Yeah, I say, you are know, War of the Worlds, you know, it's kind oh, of... Oh, I had
1: fun doing the same thing. There's a, there's a, there's a location called Trantor. Mm. Um, there's Tannhauser's Gate. Uh, yeah they're just he's just randomly picking names out of earlier science fiction and and it's a celebration of science fiction in that sense but i think you're right it's also a, a metaphor there, a,
2: for the end of science fiction in some sense i mean exactly. we, it's a book you read next to empty space say which is also a book about the end of science fiction you know and about well where do we go now you know what's what's the new imagining of the world that we need so it's a mm-hmm. funny kind of funny book it's about the end of a series it's about it's it's asking a series of quite i think quite pertinent questions about where does where does humanity end up you know but also you know kind of about what is what is the role of science fiction in helping imagine that you know and it's not doing it as overtly as a book like empty space but it's definitely doing it
1: well yeah empty space is well empty spaces uh, for me in terms of last year's well novels i guess it's i guess it's technically this year in the states but that like almost everything I read by M. John Harrison
0: seems to me apart from everything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, but but it's interesting though to to have the suggestion that it's not because I mean it's it's ridiculous to suggest that anything that uh, one particular writer is doing is completely divorced from everything else, even if it reads as being somewhat too generous. And obviously, Harrison is responding to the same cultural zeitgeist as you know anybody else, Macaulay or anyone else. Uh, now, admittedly, Harrison querying the whole mission of science fiction is less surprising than anyone else. I mean, for a man who sits down to write a book to kill space opera, deliberately... Oh, exactly, and did that, what, 30 years ago? Or so. More, in the early 1970s with the Centauri device. Yeah. Though I, I often wonder when it's described that way just how frank a description it is on the behalf of the author because uh, for all that it is, the book that it is this is a man who writes the poetry of space opera as well as anybody ever has
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and who is drawn back to it. I mean, the science fictional elements of the Kefuhuchi tr- you know, trilogy are as intensely relevant as the contemporary sections and as beautifully realized, if not more so. So um, mm-hmm. you, you, you feel like it's it's something that he wrestles with in his work on an ongoing basis and you can see in macaulay I- even if he's maybe questioning it in a different way he's still using the tools at hand to ask similar questions i think
1: i think in that sense macaulay is more i hesitate to use the term but i'm using the term in a kind of thomas cooney sense more of a normal science fiction writer before the quiet war series I thought Macaulay's most important novel was Fairyland, Mm -hmm. uh, which was – it was at a time when it looked like science fiction was going to do with very interesting things with nanotech transformations of entire landscapes and continents, and that was a brilliant novel, and there were more novels that followed up on that, and then he spent a time writing thrillers, writing things like White Devils that were gruesome and violent and exciting, but, you know, not, not terribly thoughtful compared to what he's doing now. And then he did the Quiet War series, and now with 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 the um, with Evening's Empires and um, in the Mouth of the Whale, both of which I think are set something like fifteen hundred years after the Quiet War, mm-hmm. which seems like almost a a, a kind of uh, summative, as James said, almost a, almost a critique of what he was doing in the earlier novels. Where does this lead to? Fifteen hundred yeah. years later, where are we uh, with it? This. You know, what he was doing in The Quiet War was not unfamiliar to science fiction readers. It was this this mythology of the outer colonies being the frontier and the inner colonies being kind of the, uh, you know, uh, repressive, uh, well, from an American point of view, repressive British government. Uh, Then, of course, it's going to uh, result in in, in a kind of democratic revolution uh, it, it's all kinds of martian novels deal with that and but now but now he's looking at looking at this from 1500 years later yep. which is a lot like looking at um revolutionary movements from 100 200 a 1, thousand years on what did they really accomplish what's the mm-hmm. real effect of this and that's the kind of question i think science fiction needs to be asking and i'm glad to see macaulay asking those questions i, I think one of the
2: other things that's really interesting about macaulay and, I mean, one of the things I really like about Macaulay's books is that they are, there's a kind of basic, both human optimism but kind of human truth about them. You know? I mean, and I always think it's significant that so many of them are about young people, you know, because there is something, there is a kind of hopefulness, mm-hmm. them, which is really nice. You know, and, and there's a story like The Choice, which was the novella, which won Campbell last year or the year before, which is a, one mm-hmm. of the best things he's ever written. It's really cool, you know. Um you know, or this, it's about this young man, you know, but uh, that kind of hopefulness is there. But one of the things I think is interesting about him and, you know, I'd say the same about um, the new Alistair Reynolds books and I'd say the same about um, 2312 is that they are, I mean, all three of them are, all three of those, for instance, are working with a particular vision of the future, which is about saying, look, we don't go to the stars. We spend uh-huh. the next hundred 200 years grappling with the total mess we've made of the planet. We eventually get that reasonably under control and start moving into the solar system you know and but what what they're actually tacitly doing is saying we don't want to write about the chaos of climate change we don't want to write about endings we don't want to write about dystopia and apocalypse we want to write something which is about trying to look beyond those and see what mm. might you know, and not in not in a kind of predictive kind of way, but about trying to imagine ourselves past that kind of roadblock that we seem to be in at the moment intellectually about imagining the future. And, I mean, you get a lot of talk about the crisis in science fiction, and in as much as there is one, you know, and, I mean, I, I think there are persuasive arguments to be made that there are some pretty serious problems. You know, a lot of that, I think, is about a kind of inability to imagine ourselves past stuff. And there's all, all these dystopias, all these apocalyptic scenarios and much as i love the walking dead you know mm. essentially they're about closing down you know essentially they're about ending you know essentially they're about not saying what comes next and then, there comes a point where that becomes almost kind of masturbatory you know it's about about rather than actually trying to say how do we imagine the future it's about saying well don't let's imagine the future and in fact we were talking before we started briefly gary and i about oblivion which we yeah. both saw this week i think which is really quite dreadful but, <laughs> um well it's it, 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 go ahead because I, 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 well, is, is that is there's a level at which that kind of the visions of our own destruction the visions of the empty earth by the time you reach a film like oblivion they've become a kind of end in themselves they're this completely aestheticized experience and beautifully aestheticized it is the most beautiful looking film it looks amazing but you know you kind of wonder whether we haven't reached a point where even that kind of you know, we've reached the end of something again, and now we are about to move into something different about trying to kind of imagine the world, you know, how do we live with climate change? What does a world altered by climate change look like? You know, and rather than imagining everyone wiped out by a plague, we say, well, actually, everyone isn't going to die, but we're going to have to deal with massive dislocation. We're going to have to deal with, do you know what I mean? Because it comes yeah. to quite a different series of questions that you have to ask, you know, so I wondered whether I, that that movie felt to me like the end of something it
1: really did you know well, I, 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 th- I, I, I think it's symptomatic of the end of something in the sense that yeah. uh, there was i mean I, I had my old anthropology class i remember we were studying structural anthropology but there was a wonderful german term and i don't know who coined it called Gesunken Kulturgut, which basically sunk well literally i guess means sunken culture goods that that ideas which uh generate in, in, in minority cultures, or if you want to elite cultures, eventually descend into mass culture and, and, and eventually become formalized and corrupted. And it seems to me that for the last several decades, uh, a great deal of science fiction has given up on the future of the earth. I mean, it's practically a cliche now to read about the Florida archipelago or to read about the, the, the ruins of New York. That's uh, everything from Scott Westerfeld to, uh, to the Hunger Games to uh, any number of things. So, so yeah, the science fiction writers have moved out into the solar system, but that idea that the that, that the Earth is 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 a is a lost cause has now made its way into popular movies. And, it's, it's, and Oblivion is one. There was one with Will Smith called What was that? After Earth. Uh, after uh, Earth. Uh, yeah. I, I have not It's been terrible. <laughs> I guess it must have been really awful. I mean. Um, And uh,
2: he's not making jokes. Why would
1: you make a movie with Will Smith being serious? (laughs) Well, that's true. I mean, I had one curious observation about Oblivion and and Pacific Rim, which I liked, actually. And that is the tendency of science fiction movies to have titles that seem to have nothing to do with the content of the movies. Yeah. I mean, Oblivion relates to the, the title Oblivion relates to the film only in the sense that that's where the film is headed.
0: Yeah, where and uh, where? Whereas Pacific Rim really is just what the, the the setting. Pacific Rim is the first movie.
1: Somebody pointed this out, and I don't know where I saw it. The first movie named after its target audience. <laughs> if it doesn't make a lot of money in China and Japan, it's not. It's a fun movie, that but. It it, yeah. it is fun. But here's here's a curious thing about that. Just in terms of yeah. allusions, um, I could not get my grandkids interested in it. And partly the reason, uh, partly the reason is they have no taste whatsoever. But partly the reason is that Godzilla movies, Kaiji, does not resonate with them at all. Mm -hmm. And Transformer movies, they've already seen. So the idea of a movie which is heavily elusive of earlier traditions just doesn't ring any bells for
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. Is one of the reasons that... Science fiction approaches these, these these things the way they have been though in books. Is it you know when it comes to the whole you know the whole dystopian question and how you address the future and the the, the reasons why the Macaulays skip over this period of time. Is it because you can't get away with being glib about it? You know in other words you know if you try no that, that's why I'm wrong with putting it I'm thinking this out loud. Is it that you can't create a romanticized fallen world and not be excoriated for it? You know, if you create a romanticized post-environmental um, collapse world, it will be seen as being the most terrible form of wish fulfillment. You know, I mean, I, I look back at books which I've read, even a book like, say, The Gold Coast, no, sorry, the, the Wild Shore by Stan Robinson. It yeah. has that kind of romanticized after the fall feel to it. There's a little bit of it in The Choice, you know, by Paul McCauley, you know, where where they're they're uh, sailing their skiff around these sunken parts yeah. of, of, of London, uh, or, or the UK, and it's not all about stench and decay and what it's going to actually be like. It's actually kind of quite intriguingly, coolly different in a weird way, as we skip over everything. And is that something that's, that's really unacceptable to write about uh, socially?
1: I don't know I don't if it's know. unacceptable. Go ahead, go ahead, James.
2: Oh, no, look, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that one of the you know, the book I've been working on is about this period, so it's something I've thought about a lot. But the one of the great problems about writing about climate change is that it's a non-narrative experience. You know, so I mean, it is very, you know, it's a large, diffuse, you know, difficult. You know, so you're either writing stories set within that world, or engaged in this completely false attempt to try and somehow narrativise a non-narrative process, you mm. know. So mm. you do that kind of – is it 2012, the 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 movie where the earth suddenly freezes? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think that's – um, No, that's the day after yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> <you know, laughs> the day after tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah, look, very, it's very difficult to do, you
1: know. Mm. Yeah. Well, to some extent, that's what Stan Robinson tried to do in his Washington trilogy with, uh, you know, 40 signs of rain and 50 degrees below. And the only way to dramatize it outside of essentially those are novels about government policy, the mm-hmm. National Science Foundation policy, which is not gripping. So each novel ends with a different catastrophe, you know, the destruction of the California coast, the flooding of Washington, D.C., the. Freezing of it. So the only way you can dramatize that is to is to write disaster novels, basically. And and you're yeah, right, you're right. It's a great the great trope of the
2: climate problem. change. I was going to say the great trope of the climate change book is the destruction of the imperial capital. It's always Washington, New York, or London. They have to get flooded. Yep. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I go through them. I mean, I, I'm I'm actually an admirer of particularly the first two of those books. I think they're very, very interesting books. And I mean, he's one of those rare people who can actually write about the processes of policy and make them, you know. Interesting. Perhaps not. Fascinating.
1: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to
2: I, I, I actually think they're really interesting books because they are, again, I, I, attempt to, to grapple I, with how do you write about this thing. You know, it's the most urgent thing facing us, and we don't know how to write about it in fiction.
0: Is anger the, the right response? I mean, I find reading uh, Paolo Bacigalupi that, that there's a driving anger in his fiction. I think it's certainly one
2: there's a book that's just come out in australia which i've not yet read by alexis wright who wrote *Capcornia*, um which won the miles franklin a few years ago She's an aboriginal writer um oh. called the swan book which is set in a kind of dystopic a dystopic future uh, australia where climate change has altered the place and there's kind of refugee camps everywhere which sounds like it's you know mad and prismatic and and kind of brilliant you know mm-hmm. but but mm. it doesn't. It, it sounds like it's also a very angry, a very angry book. And interestingly, one of the best books I've read this year um, is a, a book which has not been marketed as science fiction, but has a very strong science fictional thread in it, which is called Fallen Land by a, an American writer called Patrick Flannery, who is based in the UK, I think, um, mm. whose first novel is about South Africa, uh, and this one is. It's a really, it's a really, str- I, I've reviewed it and the review hasn't been published yet, so I need not to kind of talk too much about it. But the, it's a really interesting book because one of it is a very angry book. You know, it's a very angry book about contemporary America and about trying somehow to find a way of writing about the kind of political squalor, the damage, you know, the the corporatization of society. And... One of the things it does, which I think is really interesting, is it sets up this kind of generically incredibly unstable book, which is one part historical fiction, one part thriller, and then one kind part kind of dystopic science fiction, which are all kind of sitting on top of each other, pushing against each other in different in different ways. But what it is driven by is just this kind of rage about about the squalor of kind of, the contemporary world the mm-hmm. both the kind of economic squalor but the sort of political squalor of it you know it's, it's a very very powerful and very angry book you know and, and that's part of what makes it so impressive it's, i think
1: it's a really interesting a really interesting it's fascinating i mean because one of the things that happens to those of us who are more or less trapped in the ghetto of genre reviewing is that publishers aren't going to send those books to me no. i've mean, never heard of this book before no, well, it interestingly, it's
2: published sort of. by Atlantic in the UK, who also published the Chris Beckett book, which just won the Clark, which yeah. was published uh-huh. as a mainstream book rather than as a science fiction novel, you know, which which is kind of interesting. But, you know, look, it's, 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 it's very worth reading. I think it's a really interesting book. You know, it's slightly overstuffed. It doesn't entirely come off. But, you know, when right. it does, it's really powerful. For, you know, The, the setup's great. You know, the, it's, it's a piece of land where this guy's built this kind of – he's the world's worst property developer and he's built this kind of uh, housing estate, which is going to be houses for people who want to adhere to traditional American values. And, of course, it's all gone broke and gone wrong. And he's disappeared mm. because they're going to send him to jail. And someone, this family buy the house and one of them's come because he's working for this utterly sinister kind of security company that does government – Contracting, and they arrive to live in their new house. what they don't know is that the guy who built it, who is completely insane, has not has not vanished. What he'd done was built a bunker under the house, which connects to it. So while they're living in the house, he's coming and going from the house in the night. And the only person who knows this is their semi-autistic son, who's going to this horrific Dickensian school run by the. Oh, you can kind of hear the kind of book it is, but it is just it's terrific. It's really
1: terrific, you know, and really interesting. Really, I want to see, yeah. And 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 the, 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 what, what interests me is what you describe as rage, because that seems to be something that uh, in fiction can be a powerful engine, but also can be a fairly useless engine, um, in the sense that if, if if it's simply if it's simply despairing howls of agony uh, that things are going you know basically to hell forever and there's nothing as Kurt Vonnegut said this uh, I forget which um, which graduating class he was talking about when he Sent it was it was it was an all women. This must have been um, I, I Can't remember what college it was somebody will correct us where he basically said to this, you know dewy eyed group of graduates that things are going to go on getting worse and worse and never get better again So give up um, Which was very Vonneguttian. but the problem I had with Vonnegut Which is the problem I have with some of this kind of despairing rage is that's it's, it's simply smug there's a certain smugness about that sort of thing. One of the novels I have here, and I'm not prejudging it yet, but I am prejudging I, it. I, was, I am prejudging it. yes. I have the new Margaret Atwood novel, the third novel in the um, Oryx and Craig trilogy. And there's I was frankly very disappointed by the second novel. There were things I was impressed with in the first one. but there's a point at which her sarcasm simply is pointless. Uh, it, it seems to me. And I've seen a lot of fiction about that. So if you have a novel in which the rage seems to be directed in some meaningful way, um, then I will be very anxious to see it. Have you have you read The Atwood yet, Gary? I have not read The Atwood. I have it sitting no, here. No, no, I I have.
0: Oh, what you have. What do you think of it? Look, of it? I,
2: I did like the second one, I have to say. Um I mean I liked it with some qualifications, but some pretty heavy qualifications. But the uh, look it's kind of it's a really interesting book. So I mean I think I think she is so brilliant at a at a line to line. Like she's so line
1: brilliant. to line, she's a brilliant writer. There's no. Oh, other
2: she's one. amazing. But this book, like the last one, has this unbelievably unwieldy narrative structure, um, and kind of. There's a bit at the beginning where she has a has a pricey of the first two novels. <laughs> and I'm yeah, not sure I it know, actually does them any favor to see them boil down to a page each because you just think, wow, they made even less sense than I thought.
1: My first thought was this is very helpful because I need reminders because I don't – and then I read the summaries and I thought, What?
2: That's yeah, that, that is almost exactly what I thought. But I mean, I, look, I I loved it at a line to line level. It is so. I know, fun. I know. She's a prodigy, you
1: know,
2: brilliant. She's brilliant. Go ahead. But it's a shambles, as a, I mean, a shambles is the wrong word. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's. There is something. One of the things I have found frustrating about all three of them is that she. You know, I mean, I find all the neo all the neologisms and stuff are just awful. You know, I mean, I find all of that stuff dreadful. It I feel like I'm. Volvo's, yeah, they're horrible. But it's like reading The Space Merchants. You know, it's like you're reading a kind of satirical science fiction novel from the 50s, you know, rather than something that's actually, you know, engaged in a kind of meaningful critique of contemporary culture. You know, but it's that in a sense the speculative elements are done so badly. Like she's so good at a whole lot of at so much of it. And then you kind of wish she'd gone and read a couple of contemporary science fiction novels and seen how people did it. You know, I mean, this one comes with the with, – you know, it's mm. like she can't let like, go the fight about what science fiction is either. Turn to the back and the first line of the acknowledgments is something like, everything in this book, if it's not true, could be true. And you're kind of like, really?
1: What does that? <laughs> that actually mean? Well, that's, uh, that was the issue that means came up You
2: can't let go the fight you've been having for the last 10 years about what your book's really <laughs> are. But, you know, it's great at a line line level. It's really funny. It's really smart. You know, it's just it, it kind of makes no
0: sense at any other level. Is there a chance of some other level that we're missing? Because I I don't, I mean, she can write really, really well. And, I mean, uh, some of the stuff she's done in the past has been absolutely brilliant.
2: Well, look, I would have said one of the things with it, and with all three of these books, but particularly with this one and The Year of the Flood, is that they are books that work on several levels at once. So, I mean, there's a level at which it is a a satirical novel. And in, in that sense, it's almost a kind of Swiftian satire you know, that kind of large, strange tale of the fantastic, you know. Yep. Then she's trying to graft onto that a kind of meaningful kind of speculative thing. And then this kind of strange, symbolic, religious kind of thing over that. And those things all kind of push and pull against each other in yep. an interesting way. And I'm not, look, you know, The Year of the Flood, I don't think is a perfect book by any means, but I did think that final scene when the Krakers sing is you know, what does it mean? You know, and, and that sense of uncertainty about what this really means is incredibly powerful, you know, because it, 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 it's it's refusal in a sense to resolve the several different ways you could read that final scene it makes mm-hmm. it a very potent moment. You know, and I don't think this book's got any moments as potent as that, yeah. but, you know, it, it's got that same thing where it's kind of pushing and pulling in several directions at once, and sometimes that kind of tension is very fertile and very interesting. And sometimes it's just frustrating yeah you know um you know and you you keep wanting to say at some level what is this book you know what what is it trying to do and that's part of what it wants you to do but that is that thing where that, that can be both really exciting but also kind of frustrating
1: yeah you know? I, I just found the second one enormously frustrating you mentioned the space merchants there were a lot of similarities odd similarities between um the year of the flood and the space merchants in, in parts of what i thought uh, and when we know from her book on science fiction and other worlds that that she read science fiction up until the early '50s, she certainly knew about Bradbury and Sturgeon, and then basically didn't read anything for decades until she discovered Ursula Le Guin.
2: Yeah, she um, read Le Guin and Russ after that, and didn't read anything else. You know I mean it's interesting reading yeah. her alongside Russ because it's clear that Russ was a significant influence on on Atwood. You know, exactly. Um, but yeah I mean I think that's right you know and that is my that was my frustration with the the book essays as well you know I mean it wasn't just that she hadn't read any of the books that she was pronouncing on she hadn't read any of the criticism around the books that she was pronouncing on and you know I mean it was it was an enormously entertaining book and she is one of the smartest funniest kind of writers around but you know the there, there's something kind of almost deliberately perverse
1: about... <laughs> there's and we, 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 we did a podcast with, with Ursula Le Guin, and, and I, I, Ursula... I, 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 and they're friends. They, they they get along well together. They don't... Ursula doesn't quite understand, but Ursula has very little patience for what she's doing with what she believes to be science fiction. And
2: I'm somebody... It deliberately go, perverse. she has got a bit of a line in that herself, but, you know... Mm.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm just cautious about being too critical we've been criticized in the past james by friends of the podcast uh cat sparks particularly hi cat uh mm-hmm. about being perhaps overly critical of um of atwood uh,
2: oh, i'm not critical let me go. let me be clear I am a huge admirer of Atwoods and I think she is incredibly smart. I will read and listen to anything she says, you know, but I have some frustrations around these books, you know, which seem, and particularly around that book of essays, which I found a really strange exercise in kind of, I felt like she'd backed herself into a corner Mm -hmm. and was kind of, rather than conceding ground and saying, well, perhaps I, you know, perhaps I wasn't right. You know, seemed to be. Yeah, she she seemed to be kind of. Yeah, she seemed to have backed herself into a corner, which was yep. a really strange place to have put herself. You know, but I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I think I think a lot of this book is enormously impressive and funny and clever and. You know, and I like Year of the Flood a great deal. But, I mean, look, she's one of those writers – she's one of those writers who are one of those people I look forward to. A book comes out, I'm really excited
1: about. I remember reading reading Surfacing when it came out, what, decades ago, and it has to be one of her first novels, and thinking this is – the the odd thing I thought about is this is somebody with a science fiction sensibility writing a very realistic psychological novel. So my problems, I agree with you, my problems consist essentially of these three novels and, and, and books of essays. And it's not necessarily even the issue of doing science fiction in a flawed way, because I more than most people will defend Doris Lessing's science fiction novels, uh, which were clearly intended as science fiction novels. Hmm. She had read a great deal of science fiction. There are, there are things in them that are stapled on in, that are thoughtful. She thought science fiction was a literature of ideas. I don't think I would defend a novel like Mara and Don and Dan, uh, but I think in in the sense of using fantastic or science fictional imagery in a very powerful way, that the fifth child is a is a great novel. And I think that some of the Canopus and Argos parts of them are
0: pretty good. <laughs> <sighs> well, the circle around us as, as as time goes on, I should say. We've touched on a few things. What else have you encountered lately, James, that str- struck you as being of interest? Do we want to talk about the Graham Joyce? Sure, yeah. I mean, I haven't oh, read absolutely. Gary. I would love Gary? to know.
1: I I have read The Year of the Ladybird, and I would love to know what you think of it, James.
2: I liked it very much. I look It's funny because it's it's in many ways a much slighter novel than The Last Couple. But Look, yeah. there's one moment in it I totally love, which is you start reading this book, and it, in a sense is it sets itself up as being a really, you know, conventional is the wrong word, but it's a book you've read before. It's about a young man. You know, he goes away yeah. from home for the first time. He goes to this place, you know, and then you've got the intrusion of this kind of supernatural element, but it's clearly about resolving stuff from his childhood. And then on, like, page 40, he goes on that drive, with you know, and it's England in 1976, is it? Uh, yeah, back should, then, yeah. You know, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, he goes on that drive with the, 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 you know, one of the the members of the kind of cast of this place that he's gone to because it's that kind of book, and they end up at the National Front meeting.
1: At the National <laughs> Front meeting, somewhere. yes,
2: absolutely. I'm reading a completely different book to the book. Like it does. <laughs> it's such a clever moment because you suddenly go. Oh, this isn't the book that I thought of. <laughs> the book, you know, and it, it, it's a wonderful—it's a wonderful moment. I like I love the book, but I love that moment, you know, because it is—it is that that thing where you suddenly realise that you're not reading the book you thought you were reading, and nor are you reading the book he set you up to think that you're
1: reading. You know. No, and and he does that two or three times actually, because the whole relationship with his mother and stepfather uh, changes two or three times during the course of the uh, book. I think the thing that uh what i was concerned about with it and i've not i shouldn't be talking too much because i haven't actually written the review yet i think people who who liked the really material fantasy elements of some kind of fairy tale won't find them here i think that people may think this is too autobiographical that this is too much of a coming-of-age thing but then it becomes partly a political political novel it becomes uh uh partly a ghost story i suppose to some extent but it's essentially clearly very authentically um a, a depiction of um of what happened to him in an honest in, in an odd way it reminds me in graham joyce's um oeuvre of, of of the way um the ocean at the end of the lane reminds me in neil's well, oeuvre. These are both you know, novels. Uh,
0: go ahead no no i'm just how so? how well, I was going to say,
1: um, this is, I mean, partly because I've talked to Graham and I've heard some of the stories that go into the novel, I know how much of this is very close to his own experience. I don't know about the National Front thing, although it, it sounds so believable, it but this is, this is clearly Graham Joyce not doing a great deal to transform his own experiences, but he is transforming them. In the, so, so to some extent, he's making use of very, very personal material in a way similar to the way Neil Gaiman is making use of very, very personal material. But since they are different kinds of writers, it mm-hmm. comes out with different kinds of novels.
2: I've not made that connection, but I think you're exactly right now that, now that you say it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's a very good, I think it's a really good novel, you know, and a really, mm-hmm. look, it's a less, you know, it is a less substantial novel in lots of ways than certainly some kind of fairy tale or the one before it, the name of which completely escapes me at this moment. Um,
0: uh, the Silent uh,
2: Land? Yeah, The Silent Land. But um, yeah, I, I, think it's, I thought it was terrific. Well, was, the, the,
1: the Silent Land seems to be an odd one. The, 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 the series, the progression I see is from um, the facts of life to the one we're not remembering now. But the other one that takes place in, in, in England in the 1970s, which is The Limits of Enchantment.
0: Which is brilliant.
1: Brilliant. And I I could see a very clear progression between... Um, some kind of fairy tale which clearly has Graham Joyce's aunts in it um, and the limits of enchantment and and this. I don't think that um, The Silent Land... The Silent Land is brilliant. I thought it just as a tour de force of point of view and of focused... as a focused fantasy but I don't see that as part of the progression that this is part of. Mm, uh, I think
2: I said, that's right. It, that's the, other, the other two things I've read recently that are really interesting as uh, science fiction one's... um. Yoko Ogawa, the Japanese writer, yeah. um, it's actually a book that was written a number of years ago and it's only just been translated in the last six to 12 months, which is called Revenge. Revenge? It's a series of um, kind of nested short stories, yeah. uh, which are just brilliant. I mean, bizarre, deeply uncomfortable to read, um, and mm-hmm. just that, that kind of book that is so clearly the product of a really particular kind of psychic vision you know i mean it is that thing where it's like you know it is sort of it is just itself you know it is such a strange exercise but beautiful and terrifying and kind of wonderful it's a wonderful book and the other one is the the karen joy fowler which you've both read haven't you now i've not read it you know i've not
1: read it like again uh, neither uh, of us have read uh, it
2: no oh uh, look and it's interesting i'm i'm interested that which i've not read yet there's a um there's what sounds like a very similar book that's just come out by a Canadian writer called Colin McAdam, which they seem to have been published at almost exactly the same time. And I've not read the McAdam yet, but it similarly is about chimpanzee mm. experiments, okay. you know? So, um, yeah, no, look, the Fowler is really interesting. I still haven't quite made up my mind what I think of it because it's a book that's engaged in a kind of, there's a great deal of performance in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: mm.
2: it's one of those funny books where you feel like it's, it's, it, it's, in a sense, somehow you're not quite sure whether it's just jumping one step too far away from itself while you're reading it. You know, with, you're wondering whether there isn't, you know, it, it's brilliant, it's funny. she I mean, she couldn't write a bad sentence if she tried. Yeah, um, but, right. you know, but she's just such a smart writer about people and about the way they work and about the kind of contradictions and the way people deal with each other. And very smart, I think, about psychology in this book as well. But, you know, there's there's a level at which it's almost too brilliant. Yeah.
0: Wow. You know, and I,
2: I, 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 kept, I kept feeling like it was just somehow dancing away from the kind of pain at the center of the book somehow you know that it, 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 it so I, I liked it a lot i still haven't quite made up my mind about it i have to confess
0: okay i've got one sort of half closing question because we really should begin to wind up just as a thought mm-hmm. the game and the macaulay and the joyce do they basically amount to middle-aged men's books
2: the macaulay the joyce and what was the third oh, the Gaiman. yeah oh. <laughs> um uh, you, wouldn't you be describing the whole
0: of science fiction? Um, I, I don't know, but, but the, the, these, I mean, think about it. They, they, they're, they're all of a similar age. They're all in their early, 90, early, early to mid-50s, to mid white males. They're all going through probably not dissimilar life experiences. Um, certainly, um, Joyce and Macaulay have had major health problems, very sadly, which hopefully they, they have or will recover from shortly. Um, and I just wonder, sort of if that sort of ties through the kind of stories they've chosen to tell in these books that we've talked about today.
2: Oh, I mean, I'm always reluctant about kind of trying to read too much into the motivations of authors, but I mean, I would have said that the people hit their late forties and early fifties, and there's a whole series of questions Mm -hmm. about mortality thrown up by health, by one's own parents often dying. And I mean, I think that they are things that lead you back into your past often, you know, and you see it again in different ways and you often see, novelists in their late 40s and early 50s producing books which are really books that are, often they look like the books they might have written when they were 25 or 30 but yeah totally transformed by 20 years of experience so yeah. i mean you, you'd say something similar wouldn't you
1: karen i think that if you look at i mean i yeah I, when writers reach a certain age i suppose they begin to look retrospective i uh, when you start talking about middle-aged, middle-class white males, I mean, if you were to ask the same question about Margaret Atwood, you could get in trouble for asking the question because you're you're sort of stereotyping middle-aged males when you say that. Um, late career writers, I mean, you know, you look at Gene Wolfe, who's over 80, and he's writing stuff that doesn't seem to me to be at all um, sort of wan and reflective and aged in, 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 in its tone. He's inventing new things all the time. I've seen novels from writers, and I could probably name some, and probably one of them would be Brett Easton Ellis, who by the time they're 40 are writing old man novels. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: okay. but I do think there's often a, there is often a thing about revisiting childhood and trying to understand it, or revisiting adolescence and trying to understand it in a quite different way to the way you do it when you were 30, which mm-hmm. goes on writers in their 50s but i mean that's that's good i mean that's part of growing older you know we all do that you find some you find accommodations with your past that you perhaps didn't know were there yeah okay.
0: well with that we have reached the end of our, our assigned hour which i try not to let us wander too far from i want to thank you for joining us this has been lots and lots of fun and really really yes. interesting i'm really glad you're were, you were able to join us for a second time james thank you Thank you very much, Gary.
1: uh, We should should, should all three have conversations even when we're not podcasting because this is enormously informative for me, and I will certainly be looking for the Flannery novel.
0: Yeah, look, it's terrific, Gary. It's really worth looking at. Okay. Thank you. Well, with that, we'll wind up the podcast. James, well, I hope we will see you maybe in Brighton, but if not, then we'll be in touch somewhere else. That would be great. Thank you. And, you know, between now and then. And until then, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Gary, I will talk to you again next week, as always. Talk to you again next week, as always. When we will remain now, as we seem so often to be cast, the Mullers of Cooch Street. Thank you very much.